All right, and we are back with another installment of Art After Metaphysics. A lot of people like this one. It's a book, as I've said before, that has greatly inspired me. And if you want me to continue doing this, because I'm really contemplating doing the Red Book after this, but that was... The Red Book's going to take multiple weeks. It's going to take quite a bit, okay? It's going to be a huge endeavor. But uh, I, I'm willing to uh, suffer if you, you know, I've, if there's a right interest. And of course, if people subscribe to my Patreon and Substack, patreon.com slash Productions, Substack, uh, Geo's Content Corner on Substack. So please also like, share, and subscribe on this video, or even give it a listen on Spotify and Anchor, all that good stuff. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, finally taking the plunge and putting all these on Apple Podcasts, but that's, you know... Gonna have to shell out some money for that one. But anyways, anyways, this is Art After Metaphysics. Finally, we're getting into the New York School. And before I, I go, because this is, I, I might not get to Jean-Michael Basquiat, but I might have to, uh, we'll see. But I definitely want to get through all of Pollock and all of Rothko. And this chapter is dense with a lot of meaning, with a lot of mythological significance that John Dave Ebert has found. In the New York School. Because remember, okay, like, listen, bracket your assumptions. Yes, we all know the certain uh, early life sections of a lot of members of the New York School. But beyond that, you have to realize a lot of these people were inspired by theosophy and Rosicrucianism and the sort of like proto New Age that you even find in art movements, both in Europe and even in America. For example, it's, you know, it's not cited, but a huge inspiration on Jackson Pollock was Mark Toby and Morris Graves of the Seattle uh, Northwest Visionary School. And, you know, Mark Toby being a Baha'i person, you know, going to Japan, studying Zen and, and Taoist art, literati painting and so forth. But, uh, you know, my own personal interest, and this is what has gotten me in heat over the years, in the, uh, you know... In, in the doldrums of the E-Rite, is that I really started off, when I started to take my uh, the work of art seriously, I didn't start off as like a landscape painter or anything. I started off actually doing these little experiments, doing little abstract works. And some of them you could still find on my uh, Facebook page. And I really felt a sort of connection to this like, I I sort of got it when I was younger on a more intuitive level that oh, it took years of study and research, partially reading this book, actually, to truly understand why is it that certain people feel a vibe, if you will, when looking at non-representational art, when looking at abstract art. And it took years, actually, to really appreciate what these painters were doing. And I say this knowing that it, you know, sounds totally like pretentious and pseudo intellectual. And I know that not everybody is going to get it. And that's fine. I'm not saying this like it's an elitist, like, oh, you don't get it. Therefore you're, you're dumb. But no, I think that you, you know, it's, I understand the argument of reading too much intellectual work into artwork that isn't, easily graspable and i understand that 
and the later iterations, the sort of zombie formalism that came up after these painters by other lesser artists, let's say, especially nowadays, uh, they've sort of tarnished that work because, you know, it's like then, you know, everyone starts throwing paint on a canvas. Everyone does stripes. Everyone, you know, without those original experimentations, then it's sort of like for naught, you know? But I think like one thing you have to understand is that, and one thing that John David Ebert is really good at understanding is that these artists are creating a life world. They're creating an, a window into being. So they are not artists in the sort of the classical sense where they're operating within a civilizational milieu, where they're almost like artisans that are tasked to depict the life world of a particular civilization. These painters still do that. They still do that by and large, but they have to do it in a different way. And they're almost like, you know, philosophic experimenters. And even John David Ebert in the very beginning, which I will read right now, says a lot of this was a failed alchemy. You know, that's one thing. I mean, I know like a lot of uh, ideas that come from Terence McKenna or Cringe and Longhoused. You know, actually, I'm unironically, yes, he was, he had a lot of very longhousey ideas. But, you know, the one thing he did say about the 60s was pretty much correct. And you could say this equally with a lot of the 20th century art movements that have come in this particular era, especially at its height in New York. Is a lot of it was a failed alchemy. This is how he described the 60s, and this is how John David Ebert describes the New York School. So this is the prompt, two-page prompt in italics before we get to Jackson Pollock. And he says, Contemporary art, it is true, is highly individualistic and intensely idiosyncratic kind of art in which each artist is engaged in the construction and elaboration of his or her own plane of signification. Right? So they're creating their own life world. And yet we can nevertheless discern certain distinctly regional tendencies with characteristics analogous to one of those now outdated culture lecture theories. So it's a, I'm sorry if I'm butchering the German word. Culture lecture theories of 19th century German anthropology, whereas entire geographical regions of the earth are noted for the spread and diffusion of a certain custom or art motif, such as the fact that broadly considered the X-ray style art of ancient um, ancient shamanism can be found diffused from the Paleolithic caves clearly across Europe and Asia, and it's the new world as a single vast cultural sphere. But a sphere in which this art is entirely missing from African art. Other motifs have made such geographic distinctions and distributions that similarly characterize cultural zones. So, yes, it's true, and it's funny how he's noting that, you know, the Germans discovered the national character of artwork. Well, you know, mid-century Germans, let's not make too much commentaries on that. But it's true, though. I remember, you know, my, my Taoism professor many years ago said, you know, each civilization has its own national character. And, of course, this was a, a class about literati painting and Chinese Taoist art, where he says, you know, the Japanese and the Chinese, they share similarities in terms of the material, in terms of the subject matter of the work of art, but there still is characters of signification that play out. And in the West, you could see this. And even within America, I think North America in general, because of the intense regionalism that you have, 
you tend to have different iterations. So for example, when you look at a Morris Graves or a Mark Toby painting, a white writing abstract painting, they have sort of similarities to the New York school that came later. Because of course they were painting in the 30, 20s, 30s, and 40s, and New York school was painting you know, in the 40s and 50s and so forth. So, but yet Jackson Pollock, when you look at him, there's a marked difference between him and Mark Tobe, even though they may have, you know, same like with in North America with the group of seven here in Canada, right? There's always differences. There's nuances, even though you have a work of non-representation that because of people like Clement Greenberg giving it like this unified th theory, right? Of like modernism as opposed to Kitsch, they still have the differences of style, right? And I think what John David Ebert would say is that later on is that this was the sort of like the curse and the blessing. This was sort of like the beginning of the end. It helped, but it hurt. That you have this very stark marketed stylization between each artist creating their own life world. And then that leads to the marketization of it. That leads to you being pigeonholed. And people don't realize this, but near the end of Jackson Pollock's life, before he met his unfortunate and untimely end by joyriding drunk and hitting an oak tree as a, you know, he, he believed he was a form of artistic, you know, sportsman accelerationism to drive drunk, uh, you know, in upstate New York absolutely barreling on those rural highways. You know, uh, <laughs> before he met his end, he wanted to change. He moved away from the drips. He was much more sparse on, you know, on Conti paper. You know, he, very similar, in fact, his later black and white works, very similar to a lot of literati uh, Sumi works. So he was trying to, like, there was groundwork there. I think if he would have lived, I think, another decade, probably you would have seen something different, right? But he want, he knew it. He knew that he was becoming like a caricature of himself. So anyways. Um, with Contemporary Art in New York, which begins during the late 1940s and 50s, three ex uh, there exists a twofold concern that seems to be characteristic of the artist as a group. On the one hand, as evidence in the work of Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko, there is a concern with the dissolution of forms that is tantamount, I've pointed out in the introduction, to a sweeping and clearing of the stage of the basic iconotypes of European modernism. This is an effort on the part of the American artist to sever the ties with the European tradition and attempt to attain his own unique identity. Pollock's art begins as an art that revolves around the modernist iconotype and archetype of Jung. The goddess and the shaman, for instance, but eventually dismantles and dissolves these icons in favor of a flux of planetary energetic fields that is broader and wider than the scope of the modernist forms. Pollock's drip paintings, I will argue, are the first planetary art, an art for the age of satellites orbiting the Earth, looking down as if though it were one huge Pollock canvas into which specific forms have been dissolved into larger, more all-encompassing patterns of energy. With Mark Rothko, who also begins by imitating European modernist iconotypes, the forms are dissolved and liquefied into the more dynamic fields of crackling energy, but into luminous squares and units of elementary being as spiritual entities unto themselves, absolutely in, in, uh, indeterminate in nature, and un unqualified by an 
any archetypes of any kind. And of course, when you get to like his chapel, he basically obliterates absolutely everything. Rothko discovers the absent ontological center at the western core of being that has come after the collapse of the grand meta-narratives in the discer and discerning of the transcendental signifieds of the metaphysical age. With Andy Warhol, the reader inter interested in my take on him should consult my previous book, Dead Celebrities, Living Icons, and Jean-Michael Basquiat, the concern of both artists was to try to fill these new semiotic vacancies that had been opened up at the center of the West's understanding of being with new iconotypes, celebrities, in the case of Warhol, and the two-dimensional figure of New York graffiti art in Basquiat's case. These new iconotypes are the New York equivalent of the city iconotypes of the Parisian of the Parisian Impressionists. The Thonaires and crowds of Paris correspond to Basquiat's crowd king or his spindly totemic figures. Well, the, you know, of course, you know, Basquiat walking through bombed out New York, you know, graffitiing. Like, there is a romanticism of, like, the griminess of New York. Even, like, a, uh, even, like, a right-wing reactionary could, like, see that, you know. Like, what do you think the Joker is, right? Like, uh, what did Bap call him? The G-slur man in, a, in the face paint? <laughs> you know, he really hated that movie. I, I tend to like Joker. But anyways, you know, Basquiat, n now the Parisian center is filled with, you know, is filled with a, another type of hoi polloi than the fat bourgeois of, the pre of, you know, the Parisians. But we'll, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. While the artist as celebrity finds its analog in Warhol's cult of the two-dimensional electronic celebrity avatars of Elizabeth Taylor or Elvis Presley, Warhol and Basquiat then are concerned with an ultimately abortive attempt to create new iconotypes as the interior consciousness of the city of New York. The two artists are the prophets of the age of the internet. Wow, that's actually a hot take right there. We can't. I can't wait to get to that one. I have a lot of thoughts about that one. Into which all graffiti is poured, and YouTube, which democratizes the cult of celebrity into 15-minute windows of YouTube's allowed upload time. So you can tell, this is dated. This is so dated. This is, this is like early YouTube, right? Well, he wrote this in, uh, he probably wrote this before 2013, before it came out, but, you know, this is... For those of you uh, Zoomers, Zoomers could never. Zoomers could never. Back in the day, they only allowed you 50 minutes on YouTube. That's why you had to string together a whole lecture with multiple videos. That's, you know, John David Ebert, his earliest videos, I believe a, a lot of them are still kicking around before he paywalled a lot of them. You know, you could find them, and, and they were like part one, part two, part three. You know, that those are the, you know, that's the golden age of YouTube. We need to return to that. I think, I think, uh, Maybe TikTok doing the two, three-minute thing is sort of like maybe a, a more mass-produced, vulgar return to that. But anyways, I think that, you know, the live stream really destroyed uh, succinct, uh, you know, intellectual points on YouTube, but who knows. Yeah, so 50 minutes, uh, YouTube allowed upload time, and the Warhol would never very, uh, would very much have approved, but it's an abortive project. Since New York's ascendance as the capital of the art world lasts for uh, scarcely two or perhaps at most three decades. Well, I would say it still is. It's just that it's become globalized. So there's a difference, right? It ushers in globalization like nothing else. Contemporary art is a planetary phenomenon that is not tied to any particular city. And so no city can any longer claim to be its center. The center is everywhere and nowhere. Just like 
the internet. So th there you go. That is an amazing point. Amazing point. So you understand that John David Ebert is, and he probably gets this from Spangler, obviously. He's a genealogical thinker, right? So the way you have to look at the work of art is in some ways similar to way art, you know, mainstream art historians look at it, but different. And that there is ground swelling implications to it. So Jackson Pollock, for instance, is responding to or intuiting the new technology of the awareness of the planetary, of the awareness of the satellite. Because what happens right after Pollock dies, right after he smashes into that oak tree, America goes to space. Well, I mean, well, let's face it, uh, you know, for, for mythological sake, let's argue America went to the moon first, right? But we all know that there were like, you know, secret Russian cosmonauts that <laughs> met a pretty, you know, pretty grisly end. But, you know, let's, for this, for argument's sake, you know, America and the Soviet Union, I think the Soviet Union technically went to space first and then America, but let's, you know, both of them, like, let's not quabble over this, right? But the point being is that the artwork intuits things, and in a way, the New York School, rightfully or wrongfully, and this is the tragic note about the New York School, is that it led to the planetarization, that is a word. It led to the globalization of the work of art. It led to the proliferation of a truly global, you know, global homogenous artwork, because now the center of life in art so let i know like the criticism that that people would say is that especially in contemporary art history you know art history academia is that oh well to say like that is so eurocentric to say that there was uh, one city that embodied the whole artwork what about artwork in lagos nigeria what about artwork in you know in beijing or wherever it's like yeah i, I understand but the point being is that from our global picture from western civilization right from faustian man these it, it went from these different cities from rome to paris to london to new york right so you you have to really look at things from that way and you have to like sort of bracket this like post-colonial discourse you have to like really you can acknowledge it as i have but really i mean let's face it like there there were global cities when it comes to the work of art but New York, in a way, was the beginning of the end because it led to the non-city, the non-place of the work of art. So as art becomes non-objective, therefore the character of the work of art becomes decentered. It's decentered first and foremost, as we know from last week, from its physical location and position. Now it is being decentered from the city itself. From the heart of the civilization itself. America took the awareness of the work of art and globalized it. But was that the fault of the New York School? Maybe not. Because there was still idiosyncrasies that linked painters like Pollock and Rothko to their era and their epoch and even their city. These are thoroughly through and through American painters. You can't take Pollock and put him in France. You can't take Pollock and put him in Lagos. You can't take Rothko and put him in Beijing. By the way, Beijing has a bridging air world, by the way. Uh, there was a great documentary once on it. I think the BBC did, did uh, this documentary. So, But anyways, besides the point. The point being is that 
they still had the mark of character of their particular time and their particular country and their experience. So, well, let's get into it. So now Jackson Pollock. So JDE starts off with, you know, information that, more biographical. So he moved to New York with his wife, Lee Krasner. Now, Lee Krasner in herself is a very good abstract expressionist. I quite like Lee Krasner. I know, like, um, being the wife of Jackson Pollock, like, typically a lot of the women in the scene at the time, they're accused of basically just ripping off their male counterparts that they were either married to or had affairs with. But Lee Krasner, I do quite like her own take on action painting and abstract expressionism. They're very, like wave-like they're very swoopy they're very like um they have a lot of motion going on that i feel is quite different from the more like masculine iteration of jackson pollock violently throwing paint down on the canvas and dancing around and so forth there's still a lot of violence going on there's still a lot of motion being categorized on the paint you know in the paint but she has a very different flavor on it. And her color field ability is quite good. Her color palette. I, I, I really like Lee Krasner. I like her work. So if you get a chance to look her up, then, you know. So, you know, on Long Island. So abstract expressionism uh, put America on the cultural map as a new and distinct development from the type of modernist art that had come into being in Europe. And especially in Paris during the period between 1860 and 1945. Well known to the annals of art history, Pollock Downer, contemporary artist, has remained unchained. Pollock and Krasner's exile from New York City, that is to say through self-imposed, was nevertheless tantamount to a performance of the exile of Adam and Eve from the Garden. A mythological event which Peter Sloterdijk, in his book Spheres 1, bubbles, described as a symptomatic of what he calls spherological crisis. This is a type of ontological crisis that ensures in a civilization that ensues in a civilization whenever a protective macrosphere collapses. In the case of Adam and Eve, the crisis consists in the exile from the world of careless concern to a state of ontological anxiety, in an existence of being thrown into another world in which care and concern would become from henceforth constitutive of new levels of human consciousness. In the case of Pollock and Krasner, the semiotics of the two worlds are reversed. For it was the existence within the polysphere of New York City that compressed and constrained Pollock to a life of anxiety, worry, and dis desperation. Whereas out in Long Island, the removal of these pressures not only allowed him to stop drinking for two years, but made possible the singularity of his own great creative explosion. Nevertheless, the structure shared by the historical episode with the myth of his insane. Namely, the crisis announced by the exile from one sphere to the next, or rather from the state of escapement inside a protective macrosphere in New York City as the modern cosmopolitan or cosmopolis to a state of exile and unprotective worldlessness beyond it. So Jackson, you know, historically was kind of a cantankerous character. Uh, you know, they did the documentary with him where they displayed the famous painters that were still living. They, I think they did one on Picasso. But, you know, Pollock was, you know, historically uh, untamable, And he felt constrained by the New York art world. So he really wanted to move to a rural place where he sort of connected himself to, I guess you could say, a greater energy or energies 
And, you know, he was in Jungian therapy for a long time in psychoanalysis. And so he really wanted to discover something more. And this is where he developed action painting on those, like, you know, in, outside and in his big studio where he was dancing around the canvas and so forth. Pollock's exile from the modern world city, like Dante's from Florence, in which case the poet invents his own literary cosmos as a sort of Derridan supplement, Derridian supplement, to his situation is an event that becomes archetypal for understanding the ontological status of the contemporary artist of today. So in a way, most artists are exiled from a sort of mythical polis, but because we no longer have a world art city that grounds the work of art into a civilization, the modern contemporary artist is in a perpetual state of exile. Right, so you could go anywhere. You could go to the past. You could go, you know, to some kind of like weirdo futurism. You, you know, the hyper political as well. Also, uh, denatures artists and like, you know, deroots them, and and puts them into the service of a globalized regime. But then, you know, John David Ebert, I believe he gets into a little bit of politics in the end. But we'll see. Um, for Pollock's exile from New York City signifies the modern world city no longer needs the artist who has become entirely superfluous to its functioning, right? So the city doesn't need the artist. The artist no longer defines the vibe of the world city, right? The illustrator, the, the artisan, the graphic designer, the digital artist, now they take over nowadays, right? So the fine artist isn't doing too good in terms of its significance to a civilization, which is quite tragic. It's almost like... Uh, I wouldn't go so far as like Danto and others to say that we live in a post-art world. But certainly the significance of the fine artist qua artist has become of lesser importance to civilization. Which is not a sign... I mean, in a way, the artist did it to themselves, right? But in a way, it shows really the decay and the collapse of the world that we're living in, right? So, consider the days of the 16th century Rome... By contrast, in which an artist like Michelangelo or Bernini were absolutely essential to the cultural project of the Renaissance, which could never have taken place without him. In the 17th century, Amsterdam, likewise, Rembrandt, together with all the other great Dutch painters, was articulating the new consciousness of a world that was then suffering the crisis of exile from another world sphere, as we have seen that, namely, of the Copernican, which, when collapsed, took all the Christian iconotypes of medieval art down the drain along with it. So then he's going back to, you know, then World War II. The city no longer needs the artist for his undergone a structural transformation, which has rendered him inessential to its contemporary task of building a worldless consumer cosmopolis in which art no longer is necessary because contemporary existence is no longer bounded and contained by semiotic systems of meaning that create worlds, boundaries, and membranes. World War II shattered the boundaries separating one world epoch from the next. Worldless society, in other words, art becomes irrelevant. So the boundaries of the world, as defined by empires, as defined by whole systems of identity, and of a race, and of a people, and of a culture, and of a religion, that the empire entailed, that was smashed in World War II by global liberalism. Right? Because who were the winners? the two decentered monotypes of ideology rather than blood and soil or king and crown or religion and so forth. 
It was America and the Soviet Union, right? Those were the two ideologies that by definition wanted to globalize, that wanted to spread out and deracinate all the cultures that they came into contact with. If you think only the Soviet Union did it with the Soviet satellite states and whatever, and with, you know, Tito's Yugoslavia, or then with China and various other Asian countries that became communist, in Latin American communist communism, if you think that it was only the Soviets that did this, that crushed local identities into prevailing ideological systems, if you think America didn't do that, well, I'm sorry. America did that as well during the, you know, during the Cold War. So the role of the artist was transformed in this time. The artist still had significance, but not so much in America. Because in America, they still had this like freewheeling capitalist, like you could sell whatever, man. You could do whatever, man. There no longer was an import, a historic importance to having a unique system that the artist represents. Now it's like with capitalism, you, you could do anything. Right? You're, you're condemned to consumerism in all aspects. With communism, they still had the state court artists, right? They still had Soviet realism. But, you know, that too went by the wayside after the, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? Like that, then it became a free-for-all. So, then he talks about Bretton Woods after World War II, uh, European powers and their losing their colonies and withdrawing into themselves. The monodologist creating his own self-enclosed system of meaning and manners of a brickler, a brickler, uh, using scraps of whatever happens to be at hand. The artist, in other words, is Robinson Crusoe, the first figure in Western literature to be imagined as an exospheric mode, as the outside, no longer within the center of civilization. Now the artist becomes a true nomad or a celebrity, as we see with, uh, with Andy Warhol. His own macrosphere as a world island unto itself. Hence the exile of Pollock from the world city of New York illustrates a rupture in art history, demarcating the existence of status of the artist from henceforth in exile from a world horizon who must suffer the Aegon, not of completing and dialoguing with the old masters in an effort to find, as Andre Millereau describes in his Voices of Silence, his own voice, these days are long gone, but rather to create his own monodologically self-contained world island of meaning that may or may not have any kind of semiological dialogue with the masters of the now vanished metaphysical age. You know, in post-modernity, you can have that dialogue, but it's not going to be the same. There still is going to be the separation because you no longer live within the econotypes of that one world picture. Everything is up for, for grabs, in other words. So the artist has to create a world, a being unto itself or herself or himself, whatever. Art that is created outside a world may very well not have any meaning at all since, as Heidegger was the first to warn, the creation of a globalized cosmo cosmopolis that is, is based upon the elimination of all distances only results in a facing of meaning and significance. You have to homogenize everything, right? I mean, what do you think humans of flat design is? Th that's the ultimate global homogenous artwork. So you have to realize the motivation of the artist in this era. I mean, you could say that it was a conscious psyop and the CIA gave Pollock money and Rothko money, but really 
they're engaging with a, a quite a stark and terrible truth that the world of a complete world picture was robbed from them was taken away by a number of significant historical forces that culminated into not just society in general being abstracted and being globalized but the work of art itself is then taken from its root and its presence and its picture and in the wake of this the artist must create anew and therefore Pollock was representing in physical form the sort of chaos of the age which John David Weaver will, will get to so here we go Pollock's exile from Manhattan, in which the artist is excreted from the city as a kind of entropy in order to ensure the smooth functioning of the city as a dissipative structure, is an enunciation of this whole development. So the old masters would rather do by creating uh, decisive ruptures with them and wrestling out idiosyncratic systems of meaning against the ever-persistent threat of meaninglessness. The wrestle is not with the old masters anymore, but with meaning itself. And Pollock is indicative of this, his exile. So paint, drip paintings struck many of his contemporaries as nihilistic and pointless, but we'll get to that. So it's not even a conscious subversion of the old masters. Like a lot of people say that, you know, modernism destroyed this reverence for the old masters and civilization and blah, blah, blah. It's more of that. There is an element of that maybe with Picasso, but rather it's the struggle to create something anew. The, the task of picking up meaning. The artist, the crisis of meaning, like this whole like Jordan P.P. sin, like, oh, the crisis of meaning. The crisis of meaning is with us for a very long time. The artist was acutely aware. In a way, it's almost as if the drip paintings of Pollock, in some regard, they, they want to submerge you into a form of sublime by en enveloping you in this chaos. They're, they're huge. You, you fall into them when you're viewing them. But in a way, it's a cry for help. I'm not to psychologize it. Well, I mean, Pollock was acutely aware of psychologization being the subject of it for so many years. But in a way, it's a cry for help in saying that this is the chaos that we're delivered into. This is the cosmo-psychic noise. The static, right? The, the atmospheric static of the radio wave now is encircling the earth just as Pollock is doing his drip paintings and, and violently throwing and gesturing and having a sort of rhythm about it. But ultimately, it's not just pure chaos, but it's the static of these are all of the econotypes falling together onto the canvas. When you've deconstructed what the paint and the materiality of painting is, you are left with this... Um, this rather glorious mess, right? But it's not a mess. I mean, there's this very distinct color field. There's a, a, a rhythm that Pollock was doing. There's sort of like light and dark. There's sort of a, there's patterning. In, well, you know, in certain, in certain ones as well. You know, it's very evident. Like the blue poles one. The deep is one of my favorites. So there's a meaning behind there, but it's also expressing a lament to struggle with meaning. It, you know, the old masters... In a way, they were guided by a necessity of that, of, of that metaphysics, of, of that civilization. But here, the artist no longer has that voice. The artist plunges into the collective unconscious, but really, 
what's staring back is the abyss. And that's what Pollock represents. So if you can like sort of bracket the, the biases you may have against Pollock, and you can recognize why he made the decisions he did. All right, this subchapter is called Planetary Artist. But Pollock's work also opens up another window, for he is the first planetary artist, the first artist that is in the Western tradition, anyways, to enlist the power of the Earth in the creation of his images. Now, you wouldn't think about that. You would figure that it is pure non-representation, that there is no subject. But according to JD, you're wrong. So, <laughs> you know. To enlist the powers of the earth in the creation of his images, in respect, he is the forerunner of the late artist, uh, later artists like Christo, Robert Smithson. I actually quite enjoy Robert Smithson. I think uh, <clears throat> there's this one documentary on him that's quite fascinating. James Turrell, which is a certain uh, rapper turned politician's favorite artist. Andy Goldsworth, Michael Heiser, et al. Artists, in other words, who pre presuppose the earth itself as their canvas. In the global ecume, art likewise expands to planetary scale. So the creation of the world becomes literal. Now he's referring to land art, which I think he will get into a little bit later on in the book. Land art being the use of natural materials that in an odd way go back to the situatedness of the earth. That go back to having the work of art in a specific location by necessity. That is what land art is. Now, a lot of people say that it's not really art, that you're just rearranging natural elements, that there's no artistic practice in it. There's always debate with these sort of uh, conceptual works of art. But it's, in a weird way, a return to tradition. Well, in, in, in some sense, in an eco-primitive sense. I'm sure maybe uh, maybe Petty Lincola would approve of it. Maybe, maybe not if they have to transform the natural landscape. But then a lot of land artists will use... Materials that are present, like site-specific. And we'll, you, you know, we'll do art pieces that can only exist as an extension of photography. Because by definition, a lot of their pieces are evanescent. They change with the environment, with the natural world. So, Pollock, while not technically speaking the first to lay his canvas flat on the ground and dispense with the easel, was nevertheless the first to make this practice his trademark, signature. Doing so, he eliminated the brush and instead used sticks to drip so his can of paint to apply the paint to the canvas. And doing so, gravity itself for the first time becomes a tool of the artist's repertoire. But of course, you know, Pollock's, he couldn't do this without modern technology. Well, not modern technology, but he couldn't do it with like industrial technology in the sense of using very thin down enamel paints, copious amounts of thinner, of turpentine, which actually is quite a nightmare for restorationists to, uh, tend to the Pollocks because it's always, uh, you know, it always, you know, he used unprimed canvas with a lot of terps on unprimed canvas. I mean, oh boy, they got to do some crazy wizard magic to like preserve, <laughs> to preserve Pollock's work. So anyways, very curv curvature of the space surrounds the earth in order to bring forth his image. The image therefore is not random at all, but follows the contours of the earth gravitational field. The earth's gravitational field which according to Einstein's general theory of relativity is a function of curved space warped by the mass of the planet inside it. In his drip paintings, then Pollock was visualized curved space. He was visualizing curved space, allowing his stick to follow the concaves and cavities surrounding the earth rather than any particular object upon it. Pollock himself points out in the interviews that 
Navajo and Tibetan sand paintings and painters also painted their images on the ground and therefore utilized gravity as a tool. But yeah, so even the, the Tibetan sand painters, what they'll do, they'll have this uh, hollowed out little bamboo stick that has a tiny hole in it where they basically piddle uh, with a little tiny stick. They'll like bat grains of sand onto the canvas, onto the, the area to do those sand mandalas. It's very technical, very like laborious and time consuming. And of course they destroyed it at the end. So it's not the work of art, but it's an artistic practice that is in service of a spiritual end. So, you know, the iconotypes that structured their seeing allowed them to paint only mythological images. Like the Nazca lines, right? It's the same concept. You could Is that land art or is it the spiritual representation, the symbolism of a people? Or was it aliens? But same point, same point. By the time Pollock's art, such as iconotypes, as having seen already in this book, instruction, held by, had largely disappeared by his time. As the French theoretician Paul Virilio has pointed out, orbited the orbited his canvas. So Pollock orbited his canvas like a Lancet satellite, looking down at the at the abstract topographies of the Earth from outer space. And in this respect, too, he foreshadowed the coming epoch of encompassing of the planet, the encompassing of the planet by human technologies. Pollock's first trip in 1947 prefigured the launch of Sputnik, by in 1957. Thus, though it was a truism to say, the artist has always anticipated what's coming over the horizon before it even arrives. Pollock, we do find uh, rectilinear lines of Barnett Newman or Mark Rothko. Nowhere do we find them. Now he is prophetically looking ahead on the surroundings of the planet, not only by satellite and hence its transformation into giant art objects, but by the cocoon of electromagnetic white noise. That would soon engulf it in the beams of radiation that compose a vast satellite network, satellite network of competing transmission signals, all combining invisibly to create a mesh of interference patterns densely woven around the Earth like the fibers of a, of a moth's cocoon. Indeed, Pollock was painting the white noise that surrounds the Earth's curvature, uh, such as Klarheis Stalkhausen, at the same time in Germany was composing his first electronic compositions built on on uh built out of the degradation of white noise into colored sounds so his electronic studies of 1954 uh, 1953 are the auditory equivalent of pollock's drip paintings thus pollock was already making visible in his art the invisible environment that would sl slowly begin to close around the planet in subsequent decades he's therefore the first truly planetary artist and such his drip paintings constitute a complete singularity, a total rupture from everything that had taken place in art history before him. Pollock's works corresponds to what Badiou describes as an eruption of singularity into status quo situation. An event, in other words. So in the French theory, the event is something that ruptures an order but singularizes another order that has different elements that coalesce into it. Right. So, for example, the event of a protest Something that Hart and Negri uh, talks about. In other words, it's changing the sequence of history of the situation. For, uh, for after all, Pollock, as we know, art, art would never be the same again. So, in a way, you could say that Pollock was doing something deep. He was doing something that was transformative. Something that ruptured with the past, but also represented 
an insight that can only be within the collective unconscious if it not were for the shift of a new planetary technology. Radio waves, sound waves, satellites, you know, kind of like the dialogue I showed you back, I forget which episode of Infoocracy. It was the dialogue with, uh, from, from, the, from the HBO show Oz with uh, Antonio Napa talking about communication technology and television, how maybe there will be so many voices beamed up to the heavens that maybe God chooses not to listen anymore because of the noise. I thought that was a very profound statement. Uh, if you go back to, I think it was like the fourth or, I think it was the third episode of Infoocracy, I forget. Anyways, you notice how, like, I mean, of course, to be fair, you could say that this is intellectual straining, right? I will give you that. And that this is not art. This is rather an experiment of intellectual cartography. Now we move on to modern econotypes. The Shaman and the Great Mother. But in order to understand this development, we must look at the evolution of Pollock's images, where they do follow the lines of a development, a transformation of growth and form that follows the law of its own inner logic. So, you know, of course, he was very inspired by a lot of the indigenous artwork that he was around. He was inspired by his... Um, explorations within Jungian depth psychology and so forth so he then returned briefly before his death like I said to some similar imagery there are to begin with two figures the only two figures that from the pro protagonist of his figurative art up until the 1947 drip paintings and they are first announced in two of his earliest paintings both of which date from about 1930 this is the painting of its various titled, uh, variously titled Woman or Mother, and which shows a uh, pendulously, uh, pendulous breast woman surrounded by five mysterious beings, probably males, looming up from behind her. This painting has been interpreted by Ellen Landu and others as an autobiographical portrait of Pollock's mother and her five sons and the literal level that this prob is probably correct. However, she is rendered in such a way that as to suggest an unmistakable comp comparison to ancient images of the archetypal Neolithic Great Mother. Eh, the Longhouse Mother. Who will form one of the major figures that will undergo transformation throughout the evolution of his images. So it's funny because you could, you know, I'm sure as JD would say, is that you could easily you know see um one style into another you could easily see that pollock his drip paintings have a sort of chthonic chaos they do have i wouldn't say like a direct feminine energy but of course it's always the contradiction right like that's always even nietzsche and of course Jung was fascinated by this aspect of nietzsche that is the feminine that is brought out by the masculine right because Zarathustra, his wisdom is a female. It's wild wisdom, is woman. So the masculine, the Apollonian, gives way to the Chthonic, the Dionysian, the woman. Which is ironic, right? It's a, it's a contradiction. It's like the anima, right? The, the feminine part of the male, comes about from the masculine. The solar masculine. The lunar feminine. So... Jackson Pollock, 
the sort of intense chthonic feminine chaos that is also unleashed by the masculine pursuit of like modern technology and communications right ironically enough brings forth the chthonic brings forth the chaos you know i know it's like you know typical jordan peterson well you know you know the typical like Jungian like uh this is chaos you know this is bloody chaos but anyways it's truth it's bloody chaos it's, it's the truth right so the masculine ironically enough brings forth kind of like how the the internet is that you know Pollock in some ways predicted you could read Deleuze in this you could read that the sort of multiplicity the rhizomatic structure of Pollock strip paintings that follow an order, but an order that comes about from a seeming chaos of different bands of connections that go everywhere, of different forces. I mean, Pollock is a rhizome, really. I mean, I know it's kind of like a midwit take, but it's the truth. And the internet is structured, the oceanic experience of the internet is structured as such in that it's coded as masculine, as male, as nerd, uh, you know, pursuit, as. But really, it's like, you know, it's like what Meme Analysis said it's the digital anima. It's where all the little lost boys play under the cosmic chaotic womb of the feminine, the womb that is comprised of different connections, of different intensities, of that is a whole being that is brought together cumulatively, like a structure, a megastructure that isn't just the, the sum of its parts, right? It's the, the whole entity is luminous. Because each part arranges and moves with the will of the Leviathan mother, if you will. So Jackson Pollock was depicting this. So you could see that the Longhouse Mammy brings, you know, gives way to the sort of like womb-like experience of even going in person and witnessing a Pollock. Of witnessing a totality. Of being enveloped by this huge canvas. It's like you're, you can imagine yourself in a primordial chaotic womb looking up at the stars. Right, so you see the five sons. I believe it's a daughter as well. The, the the woman or the mother. These figures, they're almost faceless. They have the de denotation of a face. You have the typical Wollendorf, you know, cosmic, uh, you know, Venus structure. Her her uh, breasts and her thighs, thunder thighs, and they're all gathered around her. And of course, there's the sea of chaos and energy underneath her. Very fascinating painting. I, I can almost see, uh, you know, Hikon, you know, posting this painting saying this is the enemy, right? So that's that's what I mean. It's very much like a Venus of Wollendorf type of painting. But anyways, moving on, moving on. So the other figure appears in his self-portrait painted about the same time as woman, which shows Pollock himself as the eerie two-faced being, half of two-faced in a shadow and apparently, apparently undergoing transformation into a mask. So again, you probably got that from Picasso. This mask is, of course, the masked shaman, shamanic apparition that will appear in the totemic paintings of the late 1930s and early 1940s. That apparition is simply a transformation of himself as alter ego, the masked shaman being whose consort is the Great Mother. Just as in Paleolithic iconography, mammoth ivory sculptures of the Great Mother appear in tandem with shaman being, shamanic beings, such as the three 30,000-year-old standing shaman lion, lion man found at Hollenstein Stadel in Eastern Europe. The masked shaman being makes its actual debut in his 1938 painting, Birth, 
his first masterpiece, incidentally which shows a series of masked faces all tumbling into disarray as they fall downward as though they were spilling forth from some kind of cosmic womb like the the, vag <laughs> the vaginal cleft of the deep, one of his last paintings. The deep is one of my favorite paintings, by the way, by Pollock. It's, it, but also, it's not just, I mean, he codes it as, uh, you know, as the yoni, right? The cosmic yoni, the opening. But I think it's really about Pollock's understanding of what lies deep within the unconscious. The deep is that, like, one little speck of blue that is giving way from this, you know, this very, uh, very, like, luminescent white painting, these white stripes, you know, these swatches that really are covering over the unconscious. The murky depth underneath the firmament waters. All of this is, you know, and of course Young says this, that all dreams about oceans or waters is about you plunging into the depths of the unconscious. And this is how he explains great mythologies of floods. The unconscious comes over the civilization and disrupts. Uh, this is how he describes the firmament, Hades, world mythologies that have significance with water and so forth. So Pollock is very much doing this like representation. It's funny how right before he died, he did this painting. It was one of like his last action paintings. So there's a lot of... Um, significance in that right so i mean i think there is but the deep of one of his last paintings has been said that the series of apparitions with the vertical orientation suggests the totem poles of native americans of the northwest pacific coast an image which i think pollock probably did have in mind when he composed it the mask is well is well known are uh are modeled from carving um uh, well it says eskimo but let's let's say inuit in case the uh rcmp is watching the Inuit shaman masks, but they also represent the birth of the mature style, phase one as it were, the paintings of which now begin to tumble forth after long struggle down the false path of Thomas Hart Benton's pastiche throughout the 1930s with ever-increasing rapidity from here on outward. So then, he, you know, Pollock, you know, they really do body the regionalists, right? I mean, the regionalists had their, their you know, their good points as well, but it's something more here. It's something different, right? So the uh, falling from... Uh, faces, uh, falling faces, moreover, already foreshadows his later use of gravity in the construction of the drip paintings, right? It's tumbling down. All of the econotypes, all of the masks, they're tumbling down. They're going into the abyss, and now it's just the abyss that you're left with, with Pollock. So, these masked apparitions continue to appear in the series of paintings from the period, including Naked Man, Masquerading Image, Bird, and Magic Mirror. Pollock was in actuality a displaced Southwestern artist. He traded places with Georgie O'Keeffe, who migrated from New York to Santa Fe and just about the time Pollock migrated from Arizona to New York in 1929 uh, to 30. Since his early influences, as well known, were mostly Mexican mural artists and Native American artists. The perfectly suited him for the modernist project of painting tribal icons on the walls of the modernist world. Sphere, the world sphere, a sphere that had first begun to configure itself with the rupture of Impressionism. Right, so he's like almost taking on the task of like Diego Rivera. But now instead of the mural, now it becomes pure abstract chaos, right? It becomes the pure representation of energy that is cartographically placed with the canvas. It's sort of like a marker of all those different slashes and drips. And it's like, you can, you know, that was the whole point was to capture motion, right? And of course, 
other movements that came after like lyrical abstraction took this but then incorporated certain principles of like color harmony and so forth like a hans hoffman like comes about later and like takes this into lyrical abstraction the iconotypes of modernist artist uh modernist art with its tribal world ca uh, cavern are precisely the Jungian archetypes, and so it is appropriate that young Jungian theory and mytho mythology interested Pollock in these early paintings. With the advent then of the drip paintings would come not only the death of modernist art, but also the death of tribal icons as the primary structuring forms. Pollock's art is a recapitulation in miniature of the shift from modernist iconotypes to the worldless vision of contemporary art, which has no iconotypes. So even in modern art, right, like the whole, like the height of modernism, we can see that there is a pull towards the anti-modern. That's the contradiction, right? That, like, that's the ultimate, the, the modern gives way to the anti-modern. So you have Gauguin, you have, uh, to an extent, Lautrec, you have, to an extent, um, well, especially Gauguin, especially the group of seven, like Emily Carr, you have in modernist painting this sort of awareness, oh, Picasso as well, this awareness of the primordial. This this wanting to go back to a, albeit orientalist and like sort of exoticist picture of like civilization. And of course, uh, that's what motivated Gauguin to go after those Tahitian girls. But you know, I mean, that's, he was embracing the primitive. I mean, if Gauguin was alive today, he'd be uh, on a certain forum, right? He'd have an anime avatar, he talk about marital. No, never mind, never mind, never mind. Anyways, anyways, moving on, moving on, moving on. He he he'd, he'd be a certain uh, anime aficionado. But anyways, you know the point being is that I joke, I joke, I joke. But the point being is that the iconotypes were, which is the contradiction of modernism, is that there was within modernism a seed of anti-modernism, a, a, a pulling away from the urban center, a going back to what they thought was the purity of the land. Right, like going back to something that is deep within the heart of humanity. Although this is frustrated because it's still within the context of modern art. It's still within the gaze of the modern looking at the primitive, quote-unquote. So Pollock erases all of this. He does this at the beginning. He goes along with Gauguin and Picasso. But then he goes even further into the world that Gauguin and Picasso were trying to get at. What did the secrets of these quote-unquote primitives i'm using this as sociological term i don't like uh i do not endorse i am liberal i'm a i'm you know uh you know i'm a, a trendy progressive academic but so i do not endorse this word primitive but you know you get the point these tribalistic peoples that that practice animism pollock is saying you're just painting the representation of that you're just, you know, you're just painting the affectation of it from your understanding of the aesthetic of these people, the tribal mask. That is all Picasso is doing. Pollock is saying that, no, I must go into what they actually mean. Pollock is asking what mean. And so the only thing that he can come up with is this chaos, is this sort of rhizomatic form, right? So in his self-portraits, uh, quite interesting in this regard. Right, so um, so you can see from birth you have a lot of like these orb beings, these masks tumbling down from this like there's like limbs like uh you know defend <laughs> there's like limbs flailing everywhere that's sort of de deterritorialized. There's like just they're tumbling, 
There's one, another one that's also called birth that's very masculine. You could see like the, you know, you could see the, the arms and the appendages and they're all deconstructed, you know, and it's very interesting that way. So there's other ones at the same time. Yeah, the birth is like a, you know, there's a guy getting shanked. There's another one, a, the one that he did in 1941. There's like these, it almost looks like a Fen, <laughs> almost like a Fen uh, statue, but not quite, not quite. But it's very, it's still very modern. So it's very like European. And then he's doing like other things that are very similar to like uh, Urshal Gorky. Then there's another one called Birth where it's like this crying baby and this other like swoopy jazz type figures that other, you know, people. There's almost like cellular type of work later on that other like cartoonish people like uh, Carol Dunham would come on like way later. And then he, of course, you know, he's getting a lot of this as well from from uh, Picasso, like particular, like the, the sort of black and white ones he did early on in the forties. So then there's other ones like you can tell he's trying to do modernism. He's trying to do like, he's, he's doing like these little experiments, you know, like he's doing, um, he's done the, the miners is like a charcoal work where it's like trying to depict like a brutalist modern, almost like a Soviet realist depiction of miners in a trench, you know, and there's like the, the, brutalist building in the background doing their shift right about to go down for the mines the bird is also the bird from 1938 to 41 it's also very similar to birth in that there's figures swooping down from this eagle bird like figure there's this all-seeing eye at the top there's a skull you know but there's like these orb beings that are almost like the hatchlings and then he's doing like these very like he's doing color pencils and charcoal and he's doing these jazzy like figures very similar to Duchamp. Like he's trying to capture motion and, and these bulging figures tying into each other, almost creating like a veil, like veil creases. He's almost like you would see like you'd see this type of stuff in like graphic illustration, like in sort of like a, you'd see it in an album. It'd be a very good uh, metal album cover. But he's doing a lot, like a lot of these little experiments, right? And he doesn't really find himself till later on because he has to realize that he wasn't like, you know, modernism at that time was done. So contemporary art was not far behind. And like Pollock was that huge break, right? So he abandons the modernism of Europe and he embraces something like totally different, totally non-objective, abstract expressionism. So here we go. Hyperspheric Goddess. In the 1942 painting entitled Scenographic Woman, we have the second great masterpiece. Although it is a masterpiece thoroughly dominated by the influence of European modernism, and most especially Picasso. This was painting that confounded Peggy Guggenheim and caused a stir at her exhibition because as it is, at first, so difficult to read. Initially, it looked like an image of two separate figures, a mistake made by Stephen Naffe in his massive Pollock biography. But upon closer inspection, it seemed to be, as Ellen Landu correctly remarks, a type of reclining female nude, first crystallized by Titian's and Giorno's, very, uh, Giorno's various Venus paintings. She is lying horizontally across the surface of the canvas, with legs spread apart like a playboy centerfold and surrounded by stenographic figures that are evocative of mathematic equations. 
This is in fact Pollock's great mother archetype, only now she has been placed inside the hyperspheric of the modern hyperspheric of the modern world canvas, just as Lewis Carroll's Alice was the first character in Western literature to be placed inside the universe of non-Euclidean geometry where she undergoes various spatial distortions, so Pollock's goddess archetype is distorted by the modernist n-dimensional hypersphere, with, which has the effect of breaking her into multiple spaces and frames of references. So also, like, it's also the Madonna becoming the Hua, right? So, that's another motif. Pollock has, the painted, has painted the goddess of Einsteinian space, as it were, the goddess of the hyperspheric, whose curved anatomy follows the contours of its topology so it's basically a body without organs in, in some ways it's a visual representation of the body without organs whereas newtonian visual space has been uh, re rectangular so again non-euclidean non that's also another term that Deleuze goes into as well optically correct and masculine in einsteinian space light travels along the geodisks uh geodecks of various space curved uh, carved and warped by plane, planets, stars, and galaxies. So the effect of light as well. It bends around the object, right? So I believe so. I mean, don't quote me on it. Likewise, in the painting, a yellow light ray passes through the center figure, central figure along a curved geodex, geodisc uh, with the equations surrounding her track the transformation of the Minkowskian world line through space-time. This image is thus an X-ray of the female anatomy of the modernist hypersphere itself upon which all the paintings of European art were then in process of being executed. It is this very cosmos identified with the body of the Great Mother that Pollock will soon cut apart in order to create the abstract cosmos of his later drip paintings. So he's literally, um, he's breaking down the subject into non-dimensional space. Right, so it's not like Alex Gray, where you see through the subject, but it's hyper-focused anatomy and blood vessels and muscle groups and skeletal structures to like do this like psychedelic catch. It's like no, it's none of this. It's like the figure is exploded into space, right? So it's exploded and light travels through it. But Pollock is saying now that the figure is done, where is that light going to go? Where is that non-Euclidean dimension going to go? Remember, it's all to see around the figure, right? That that's, I mean, I, I, I you know, I have a brief uh, knowledge of non-Euclidean geometry, but it's it's to look at three-dimensional objects. It's around the figure. It's in a you know, it's in an object space that is not like linear and one dim and two-dimensional. It's rather it's it's the curved images, right? So, or curved objects. It's like. To calculate it non like like uh, non Euclidean geometry is to calculate uh, anyways. Uh, moving on, the point being is that this sort of like exp explosion or piercing into the figure, um, there's this like blue color field that's wrapped around by this yellow and uh, red uh, tapestry. There's all these bouncing equations. The head of the figure is completely deterritorialized. The mouth. The eyes are all sort of like rearranged in that flat space that Picasso was so famous for. But now Pollock goes even further. The body itself is surrounded by hyperspace, right? So, and then therefore Pollock abandons this. Uh, there's also other ones as well that I quite enjoy. 
that he was getting from Europe. Like there was the one in 1942 stenographic figure, which is even more like elongated and so forth. And it's got like a lot of like, it's got like a lot of, I would say influences from Kandinsky as well. Like a lot of it comes from Kandinsky or Gorky and like not very strong colors, very like washed out, um, almost pastel-y type of colors. And also what's so unique about stenographic figure is that, you know, there, there is sort of like a submersion into these various equations, these various lines. But unlike his earlier work, they're not like very stark and heavy. The colors are light and airy. They're, they're almost, they almost feel like it's in a room on a table. Like, you know, that's what it is. It's like you can feel it. It's very like somber. It's the colors are sort of, um, well, they're definitely more European. They're not like Pollock's emphasis of very dark and brooding and greenish and earthly colors mixed in with violent reds and other ones that, that create these like, you know, very stark gashes that he's carving into the canvas. You know, you don't have any of this. Here you have a much more succinct, airy, almost like a Kandinsky form of painting, right? That's another very important aspect of it. But then he goes back, you know, he radically transforms all of this. So instead of creating color masses by the brush, now he's creating color fields by the drips. He's creating them by swirling, by putting more drips in one area. Very deterritorialized approach than the solid color block that a lot of European painters were, were fond of. Then, you know, of course, way later on after Pollock, then you have the geographic you know, geographic minimalism and things of this nature, that it's all just, you know, hard edge, color field, which Frank, you know, Frankenthaler that came after Pollock was quite good at. I think, well, she was directly inspired by Pollock, but you know. The next section is called Becoming Animal. <laughs> Becoming Animal. Becoming Animal. Uh, and, and so now we're getting into Pollock's more uh, influences from various indigenous artworks, so... In the 1943 painting known as She-Wolf, um, meanwhile, the shaman avatar from the earlier mask apparition paintings reappear. Only now has he transformed this into an animal avatar. Shamans are being capable of, are beings capable of transformation into animal totems, and the image on the cave shows Pollock's alter ego combined and blended with the female identity of his goddess. So the you know in basic Jungian psychology you would say that the anima complex is showing itself from the unconscious with animal imagery which is pretty apt considering most of world mythologies you know especially uh, whatever you want to call them the global south right and uh, marcia Eliade also had uh a, a bit about the she mother as well the she wolf you know you know uh, Eliade, he talked about in, in various Germanic mythologies and then even uh, Greco-Roman mythologies, the transformation of the wolf is the most important part of male initiation rituals. But then he talked about the one mythology of uh, Sigmund, right? Sorry, um, is it Sigmund or... Uh, yeah, uh, let's see here. The initial theme here is obviously the test of courage, the resistance to physical suffering caused by the transformation to a wolf of the compiler of the wolf song sagas no longer understood the original meaning. In the saga, Sigmund and Sinfatoli only accidentally find skins and do not know how to remove them. So it talks about how for Sigmund, his mother sends him off 
to with a wolf skin to then be initiated into the male uh, warrior cult. Mythological bishop can be confined interpreted as a description of the real male society, uh, the famous manor bund of ancient Germanic civilization. Literally, word berserk means warrior in the skin of a bear, and in this case, wolf. Berserk as a result of initiation, which includes special military tests. Tactus reported that in the huts, uh, the candidate did not cut his hair and beard until he had uh, redacted an enemy. And so then it uh, talks about the piercing skin suit. Um, the king's two sons were turned into the wolves and could only come out of wolf skin every tenth day. Sigmund and Sinfitoli put on their hides but could not remove them. They howled like wolves and understood wolf tongue. And they separated and, separated and agreed that they would not call each other for help except when they would uh, have to deal with more than several opponents at once. And then... Uh, then he goes on to say the script of heroic initiations can be traced in other sagas. For example, in the Sage of Gretur, the hero descends into the Grave Hill, which contains a precious uh, treasure and fights consistently with the ghost, with 12 berserkers and a bear. Uh, so then he talks about, like, uh, you know, some of these tales were lost and so forth. And in Germany, and Japanese male secret societies and unions, strange sounds like masks indicate the presence of ancestors, the return of the soul of the dead, meaning the dead returning to earth, especially during the winter solstice. The initiations acquired to important experience. Winter is also the season which initiates turn to wolves. In other words, during the winter, gang members are able to transform their normal state and achieve superhuman existence through communication with ancestors or bringing their behavior closer to the behavior of the predatory beast, which is magic. So then he talks about um, the Furies and how there's still... Ironically enough, a lot of the feminine still that gives over the mask, their, their male sons into the predominantly male force of becoming wolf and violence and so forth. So, and of course it's tied with magic ritual experience because the shaman was often within these warrior cults. It's funny, I, I actually uh, read this excerpt from a, a VK site where it's some... Uh, <laughs> A user that has a, a avatar of the Donetsk People's Republic flag. That's pretty funny. But anyways, anyways, moving on. So here, John David Ebert gets into um, it's into Deleuze. The central horizontal stripe that resembles an arrow, which uh, the fellows and um, which follows the axis of the animal's vertebral column, already looks ahead to the becoming animal of Pollock himself. For the axial shift of his canvases from upright to supine, that is from, you know, the typical painting on an easel to the floor, to supine, so too the spinal column of the painter, erect for centuries, like an evolved human homo sapien, will shift to a nearby horizontal, or horizontal, and hence animal-like orientation. Thus Pollock himself, with his drip paintings, will undergo the metamorphosis into human-animal-plant assemblage, a new and strange kind of artistic being that evokes a certain comparison with the painters of the Paleolithic and their obsession with animal forms like totemic she-wolves of this painting, which was directly inspired by Paleolithic art. This new human-animal-plant assemblage of the artist is a function of Pollock's relation to the earth, which, when vertical, skyscrapers in Manhattan now become behind him, become suddenly and spectacularly visible in the horizontal art. Like the myth of Atenas, Pollock too derives his strength from contact with the earth. 
Oh, he, he didn't... I thought he was going to go a bit more into Deleuze, but essentially, like, if you follow... um, He does a little later on a bit, but if you follow the uh, Becomings chapter in A Thousand Plateaus, it's not about... It's not about the physical transformation into a being of the wolf. It's the becoming transformation. It's what lies between wolf and man. That there's a, a spectrum that violates the molar identity of a man and the molar identity of a wolf in the shamanic practice. You are attuned to the becoming of a wolf or the wolf becomes you or any animal in ritual. That is, like Deleuze, he got this from Castaneda, which I know... I know that Castaneda wasn't exactly an accurate representation of, uh, you know, uh, indigenous mythologies in uh, Central and North America. But, you know, you know, uh, still, still. So, I mean, I guess you could say that, you know, I, I do know how this sounds, right? I, I do know how this sounds. It sounds like an elaborate metaphor that John David Ebert is grasping at straws here. The Pollock left the vertical behind as he left New York. He left the canvas easel behind and now he paints on the ground, and now he becomes... But there is something to be said about the losing oneself in the ritual of art creation. Because Pollock involving his whole body dancing around in the fields and in his huge uh, workshop, dancing around the canvas, splattering paint, there is a performance to it that even like modern dance people have tried to perform. So, I mean, yes, of course, it's a strange metaphor. I, I will give people that. John David Ebert's, you know, he is kind of reaching a bit here, but it's, you can see the significance of it because the artist in the 20th and 21st century has to take up, like this is the whole thesis of the book. It ha they have to take up this mythological reverence where every single act is part and parcel of that brand uh, mythology, if you will that the artist becomes, that has to take on. So, you know, I mean, so you could say the Pollock dancing around the canvas, that becomes significant. Pollock leaving the vertical horizon of skyscrapers in New York, that becomes significance. So, yeah. The Rupture. By now, with the 1943 painting known as Pasfea, the sacrifice begins to take place. The goddess that he's been transforming into, the great mother of the modern hypersphere, in stenographic figure will now be slain, cut open and completely torn to pieces. Uh, that sounds pretty, that's like a cannibal corpse lyrics right there. Um, with the debris of her body, Pollock will then proceed to construct his abstract cosmos. Pasadilla was originally called uh, no, Moby Dick or entitled Moby Dick, which evokes the myth of the hunter of the great beast, the hunt for the great beast. The canvas featured a central creature, obviously feminine, that is flailing about in what looks like a water while severed arms being uh, being several armed beings stand around her, ready to thrust their spears into her in a performance of the Babylonian myth of the sacrifice of goddess Tiamat, whose body was cut open by Marduk to make the heavens and the earth out of it. An Aztec equivalent of the same myth, the earth goddess Talatechtuli is torn in half by the creator god Quetzalcoatl and the Tezcatlipoca, um, who each grab one half of her body and pull it apart, then use the pieces to construct the cosmos. I believe also Isis, or uh, sorry, Ishtar, or Isis as well, there's some kind of uh, exploding, I, who did she give birth to, Horus? There's some kind of opening up of, of, the, of the feminine energies. There's a sort of cosmic, uh, you know, 
similar to like a, how a star goes supernova. Like the essence of something is torn into space. There's there's a lot of like violent imagery in world mythologies of the particular feminine goddess being ripped open and torn open like a cannibal corpse song, like a gore grind album, you know, like uh, I could go into detail, but I won't for YouTube purposes. But there's a lot of similar mythology. I know like a lot of uh, these like, you know, feminists that work with mythology, a lot of these types, like the Mary Beard types, they talk about how, well, that means all civilization was structured as violence against women. Because, I mean, you're literally ripping apart a woman to reveal her womb, you know, to open up that that primordial womb. But really, that has intense mythological significance. Even, you know, forgive the violent imagery. There's still something there. And Pollock, it's funny how in the abstract, in the, in the confines of modern art and abstract expressionism, he's, re he's going back to this cosmic motif. That he intuited of the opening up of the cosmic mother. So, so the story behind Pasiphae was that Pollock was doing a bunch of color studies. He was trying to invoke the surrealist technique of automatism, where you sort of tap into the unconscious by doing automatic, whatever the mood or feeling in that instant moment, you grab a piece, of, you know, piece of pastel or paint or charcoal or whatever. And you automatically draw lines and so forth. So then he eventually developed the full painting where you have from this ripped cosmic womb, you have a lot of different figures and arms and also the bull and a lot of different mythological figures. So, for example, he's getting this, of course, from Europe as well. The half man, half bull minotaur, which I mean, that's also featured in, in Guernica, right? I mean, he's getting this from Picasso, but... He basically arrived at this cosmic theme of the opening of the womb by tapping into his unconscious. Because I believe his therapist told him to start incorporating surrealist techniques, of course, in his therapy. So, moving on. The Native Americans were kept reworking and reworking beneath the lattice work of vertical canvases until the animal forms were completely dissolved beneath abstract designs. The creation of the Guggenheim, so even more abstract than indigenous artwork... Creation, creator, uh, creation of the Guggenheim mural shows that he was, in fact, involved in an elaborate process of sacrificing form to create a new densely interwoven cosmos out of bodies. In this case, animals of living beings. In the 1943 painting Guardians of the Secret, this new cosmos is already foretold in the rectangle that occupies the center of the composition, which is flanked by two threshold guardians, one on either side of it, as though unveiled in a, a, a revelation. The rectangle in the center painting is full of abstract, totally non-figurative forms, as though Pollock's new development, the creation of the abstract cosmos out of his great mother, her animal fam familiarities was also was already being cleared for clearly foreseen. Like conflict and nightmare abstract paintings, though not yet drip paintings, which had uh, disassembled his great mother, creating a new kind of cosmos out of the pieces of her body, a non-figurative, non-spatial cosmos that is the densely woven together as a Persian textile, Persian textile, sorry, Persian textile. Composition with paint pouring one and two, and also water birds. I actually quite like water birds, but they're only tentative steps towards the will what will later become the new revelation of his art. Now cosmos. Now everything's complete. So notice how with Pollock he's moving through the sequences. He's getting more abstract, more uni you know, more numinous. To use that hippy dippy term, he's getting more numinous in his artwork. He's getting more abstract. He's having to rework the steps back towards 
a primordial void, a complete rhizomatic chaos. He's deconstructing the images rather than building up the images, but he's doing so in a very ancestral sort of way. In the world mythologies, you have this process as well. I believe Eliad talks about this in The Eternal Return, where you will eventually deconstruct these animal, these animistic figures, these mythological guides, these sort of archetypes. They will slowly become dissolved. You know, similar, I mean, you could say certain forms of shamanic Buddhism that you find in Mahayana that relates to the, you know, pagan mythologies that were present in places like Indochina. You'll still find them in temples and so forth, like in Angkor Wat. You could say that also there's this process of dissolution that happens. So Pollock is recapitulating, um, you know, you could say the Christianity and later, well, later developments of paganism in Europe and Christianity, you could say develop. They, like you get from the abstract to the contextual to now the personal. But now Pollock is going back to something more ancient where it's the reverse process. It's going from the, the personal and interpersonal down into the chaotic cosmic, into the void. He's entering the void, you could say. But notice how his works of art trace the step. So that's what I mean. That's why I'm always skeptical of people that um, people that ascribe significance to like the cia thing you know what i mean like maybe later on they came and they subverted right but you have to realize that within the mind of the artist pollock was going through this transformation like all artists do from their early works to their later works and you know you never know what's going to come out on that other end right so there's always a genealogy to the work of art you can't just think of things as purely mercenary when it comes to modern art where you think of things as, well, it's because the CIA gave them money to do this and, you know, they had to subvert Soviet realism, blah, blah, blah. And, like, no, it's, like, there's clearly... You don't just, like, arrive at this stuff. Like, maybe nowadays you do. You just throw paint on a canvas and it's very unconscious and childish. But you don't just arrive at these assumptions about where your own particular work of art has to go given the context of art history up until your moment which was Pollock was acutely aware of. It's like now, you know, there's no like decision there that is like, I'm going to like spoof people unless you're like Deschamps, you know, I mean, that was different. That was an aberration where he was like sort of like trolling, you know, but there's sort of a history there. So you have to like keep in mind that in Pollock's own personal work, he's going through this history. So now Cosmos, one of the other constitutive features of Aztec myth was the idea that blood was the fuel upon which civilization depend? Well, depended. Uh, well, of course, blood, right? Just the way we depend upon oil for its operation. In the myth of this sacrifice of the goddess Tlatelchulti, blood must be offered back to the earth goddess in order for her to grow in the plants and various vegetables, such as maize and corn, upon which the human beings depend for survival. And we say that America right now is basically a maize corn goddess, uh, a maize corn god that is a vengeful spirit that uh, is inflicting cellular, even spiritual physiognomic damage upon people by uh, high fructose corn syrup. The Mesoamerican priest consequently was normally required to offer his own blood in order to summon the ancestral beings to do his will for him. He had to slice his uh, private regions perform his, t uh, his tongue and then 
perforate his tongue and then perform a whirling dervish dance that splattered the blood from his places onto sheets of paper that surrounded him. This splattered blood was the cause of vision serpent to appear and open its mouth, whereupon the ancestor being would peep forth and ask him what he wanted. We have seen that the fate of Pollock's great mother was to be cut up and torn up from abstract cosmos out of pieces of her body, carefully woven together to create a dense textile antiform. An antiform now. But now we must inquire the fate of Pollock's alter ego. The masked shaman whose later appearance in his art in the in the totem lessons from 1944 to 45. After that, the masked apparition does not appear again until the black and white canvases that follows action paintings. The drip paintings that he processed to create the long Island that he created in long Island, then represent the splattered blood of the shamanic being, which he now offered to the sacrificed remains of his great mother, which are together united dripping along with forms to create the cosmos of his abstract drip paintings. There are synthetic fusions of the blood of his shamanic, a shamanic protagonist mixed together with chunks of the great mother's body and so the figures are all still present therefore in his later paintings the universe that he creates out of the body of his great mother is based on the revelations soon to be taken up from the systems theory during the 1950s of self-organization from noise his drip paintings created by the using vertical motions of his hand are densely um vortices that evoke ancient creation myths in which the cosmos spontaneously brought itself into being from his own swirling vortices, like the atoms of Lucretius that swirl the cosmos into being, uh, atoms in void, right? The, the atomists of uh, the pre-Socratics. The myth of autopoetic or self-making cosmos is very much opposed to the poetic myth of the make of the marker in which Yahweh or else Plato's demiurge, ah, see, I told you, Fashion the universe into being along the lines of an artist craftsman who used a material like clay or brick to create a manufactured artifice. The creation of the universe out of the body of Tiamat by Marduk or Tautashuli by Quetzalcoatl, I can never pronounce the name, or Tezcatlipoca are also cosmogenic myths of this kind. But the myth of self-organization, which is much older myth, still present preserved in the open lines of Hestioid's Theogony, in which Gaia gives birth um, parvothenogenetically, without insemination by a male, to her husband Oranos, a survive from, survives from the ancient Neolithic plant world, in which the Great Mother, as goddess of the earth, gives rise out of her own substance to the plants, which sp spirally grow, twisting slowly up to the soil, imitating the spiral patterns of the motions of the heavenly bodies. This mythology, as I've written about elsewhere, later resurfaces in complex dynamical system theories, systems theory, in which autopoetic systems then self-organized from noise become the primary reservation. Pollock in his drip paintings is already pointing ahead to the discovery of noise as revelation of the pre-cosmic chaos from out of which the cosmos swirls themselves into being. Thus, Pollock in his artistic technique unconsciously imitates the myth of the maker who cuts up the body of the goddess to create a cosmos out of her. But yet the cosmos that he invents is precisely this, that of swirling motions of the power of the goddess to self-organize. His work, therefore, is something of a paradox and defines facile readings that try to compare it to other one or another category. His drip paintings are not merely energy made visible, as the cliche goes. Rather, they are instance of both and... They, ima they, image, uh, they imagine both the curvature of the earth together with the electromagnetic noise that surrounds it. 
And they also retrieve the body of the sacrifice goddess whose power of self-organization from noise is the very myth that underlies information and complexity theories. Pollock's art is great art and great art is great precisely because it always evades complete capture by any one of the semiotic systems of meaning. Multiple semiotic systems are required to illuminate from various angles, to illuminate from various angles, but one idea underlying all of the systems, whether mythological or technological, is the revelation that noise prior to the formation of the system is the revelation from out which the system, be it the cosmos or sign, arrives. World Island. So then we'll go to uh, the last bits here. But before we get to that, let me explain. So, for example, water birds. Let's take water birds, for instance. One of my favorite Pollock pieces. You have, like, a lot of... Uh, you have the energy of a bird, and certainly the sketches that he did suggested sort of waterfowl. He did a number of prints and, and sketches, and all of them have these abstract geometrical shapes that sort of converge on with each other. But now, when you get to the full painting, you have, you know, a lot of... You have this blue and this turquoise in the middle. You have almost, like, suggesting water ripples... You have, of course, the beginning of his drips, but you still have visible shapes. You still have solid color blocks that suggest birds in the water. But when you really look at an artist image, and I know like the, the sort of like normie uh, school tier, like, oh, Surratt invented the pixel. Yeah, Surratt invented the pixel, but let's look at, let's examine that for a moment, okay? Converging lines that seem chaotic can, for example, the weight of a line, the weight of placing lines together, like, the, um, if you just had one monotone line, say like a computer program, say like MS Paint, right, okay? You can create a grid image with MS Paint just by layering lines and using their weight and, and so forth because what is an image? It's tone, it's mass, I mean color, but really it's tone. It's tone, it's it's the mass of the image, it's the shape of the image, it's the composition. You can take a very chaotic sequence of lines and put them together and arrange them in such a way as to approximate an image. You ever played, I mean, this is, I don't know if Zoomers have had this, but you ever played Etch-A-Sketch? You know how people can, like, create things in Etch-A-Sketches? Like... If you have, like, even just the most limited form of, of line, of the work of art, the most limited medium, it's just a series of lines, you can easily create tone and mass and composition through a seemingly chaotic series of lines. That's like, that's like, again, the, way, the, the sound waveforms that Pollock was experiencing in the 50s, right, in the, in the 40s and 50s. You know, it's like everything. It's like if you look at the the few paintings of Giacometti, right? They seem like they're just chaotic lines. A lot of artists do this, you know? It's abstract, but when you look at it... And this comes from Impressionism well. They discovered this. That if you block together lines of color and bands of color, you can create an image on the total field of that image rather than allusions to illustrate like very illustrative type of suggesting um 3d forms like in you know the classical painting so in a way the chaos really converges into something 
So Pollock is starting to drip here, but then he discovers that through massing drips and splashes and lines, you can suggest a universe of things. And so in a way, it's like out of that chaos comes form. But also another thing, I think I'm going to end Pollock and we're going to go into the paywall section of Rothko. But I have a point about the word versus the image or um, the word versus voice. So this is World Island. Pollock then creates his own World Island in the barn on fire on Fireside uh, Fireplace Road, transforming the barn into a macrosphere cavern, macrosphere cavern upon the walls, filled with the caves again. So he's going back to the cave in his studio, right? And then he talks about the Ed Harris movie. An exile from the great world city, Pollock is washed ashore uh, along with so much civilizational effluvia, like Robinson Crusoe. So again, he's kind of repeating himself. So the Japanese myth of the creating, creator god Izankai, um, Izanagai, who drips salt water from the tip of his spear onto the earth in order to create the world, are no longer images painted upon the walls of the modernist world ca cavern, as his early tribal art has been. Rather, they're images whose semiotics are completely divorced from the realm of that world cavern, from which they have broken off into private islands of meaning all on their own. The meanings are, of course, universal, as all great myths are, but they are no longer specifically modernist, having shed their tribal tribalism, dismantled their mythic figures and figuration. So it's not mythical. It's not now Pollock is operating without the connection to a particular world mythos, to a particular historicity. Now, in the absence of that, he has to create a new. He has to rediscover it in his own sort of like a fat urbanite way. But then he breaks off from that and goes towards away. Sorry, he goes towards nature, away from the world cities, discovering the new. And then, of course, a lot of these themes when we cover Anselm Kiefer in subsequent weeks, we'll discover that. So, my media catastrophe. By now, these private macrospherological worlds are very fragile, and so they can be damaged, especially by electronic media. Which is another reason why contemporary art is in such a perilous situation. Pollock's decline as an artist is a proverbial example of a such small and independently floating world bubbles no longer connected to a functioning world can collapse beneath the impact of new mediatic forms. So again, Pollock doesn't have recourse to that tradition. So he will suffer through stylization, through the art movement. And by, Pollock, by the time Pollock came along, the art movement even as a tradition was a way of the past. Now, with the death of the avant-garde, and Andy Warhol sealed its fate, now we don't even have that. So, now Pollock is operating in a purely self-contained spherical world, like all contemporary artists, really. Um, so, anyways, in 1949, Life magazine already created the Jackson Pollock icon, the famous image of him standing in front of his paintings with arms crossed defiantly, cigarette dangling from his mouth, Pollock's second self was created a two-dimensional avatar. This mediatic Pollock was mass-produced through the circulation of the magazine, whereupon his cloned and replicated image was sent via subscription to the homes of the average domestic American, instantly transforming him to America's first celebrity painter. The second Jackson Pollock, a flat, flattened and caricatured version of him, which corresponds only vaguely to the complexities of the real, three-dimensional Pollock, the Pollock who drank obsessively was always showing up at the party to ruin everyone's good time with outbursts of venomous anger and physical assaults. This Pollock, the bi Pollock, I didn't know Pollock was bi. I didn't know that. Who suffered from a mother fixation who was instead, a mother fixation. I mean, you don't want to psychoanalyze the work of art, but I mean, come on, that's pretty clear why he 
you know, like he came from a larger family fighting for his mother's attention and so forth. But also, like, it, there's a neurotic character there. There's, uh, I, I think nowadays we have an obsession with the mother in a variety of reasons. Prawn, for instance, that's like another, you know. The existence of the image of Go the image Golem of Pollock begins to destabilize the real Jackson Pollock by taking root in his brain and haunting every action. So again, he's haunted by the specter of that media creation that Andy Warhol would then later come, would take up and, and, and rediscover and, and try to place into his iconography of the celebrity. Uh, his polyphemous cavern, as it were, so he, uh, you know, the so consequently the artificiality of the stage showing Pollock painting outdoors when in fact he always painted in the barn, his polyphemous cavern, as it were, and directed him to take off his shoes in a certain way, to stand in a way that was properly cinematic, and so forth, created as much cognitive dissonance in Pollock's psyche that the moment the filming was done, he walked straight inside the house and started pouring himself a stiff drink for the first time in two years. Electronic... So yeah, they did um, this documentary where they filmed him in action. That was pretty famous footage. But then by the last day of filming, he like just... I think he threw stuff at him. He's like, that's enough! And he's like just... He was a very cantankerous guy. He was very hard to get along with. The problem was in reality a matter of colliding media with a different image dynamics. Pollock's canvases over the years have been getting larger and larger and more and more accomplished artists um, artistically until they culminated just before Namath's arrival at Fireplace, uh, Fireplace Road with his best work. The gigantifying of his canvas, however, actually had the inverse effect of shrinking Pollock the man down to a person. Well, that's, a, that's actually a crazy observation. In direct proportion to the growing scale of his work, Pollock himself began to shrink like Richard Matheson's incredible shrinking man as mighty canvases dwarfed him. So Pollock became the work. He literally destroyed himself to usher in the cosmos. Like, like a mythological being, he destroyed himself inside to splatter his, his matter upon the, the canvas of the stars, if you will. I know I sound like a total suit saying that, but you know. The Namath film and all their media attention was Pollock's image avatar that now began to grow larger and larger before long the shadow cast over him and the mediatic avatar was huge and stood over him like the art of Michelangelo's David. The Namath film was made, he was no longer, he was no, now larger in effect than the canvases had previously created. His mediatic shadow loomed over them now and they seemed to him small and paltry by comparison. So thus was he starting to paint again. The images that appeared were the inferior black and white canvases that were now leached of color, as though Namath's creation of his movie Avatar in color had drained the color from his images. I don't agree with I don't agree with Johnny Weber. I, I actually quite like Pollock's last work. It reminds me a lot of literati painting. Um, maybe one day I'll get into it. But now the color was gone from his canvases. The media mediaized avatar was like gigantic Alice like the giant Alice in Lewis Carroll's books. Uh, book out of all proportion to the scale the avatar consequently due to his heavily gravitational pull carved the space around it and brought people into its orbit to see its exhibition so then he goes on um in ways of seeing by john berger once put it that the innate to such traditional media as painting and sculpture this condition of electronic society art cannot thrive because electronic media are cross purposes with the process of making traditional art yeah well that's true and we see this digital art. we even see the distribution of the work of art through the digital image makes it more evanescent. So the artist now has to keep pumping it out. That's why digital art, which I'm going to go into a little bit in my book, actually, uh, on neoliberal kitsch, why the constant chronic pumping out of the image renders it into a state of submission and it renders it moot in a way. 
So then he talks about Pollock's real self as, as his mean streak, his cruelty to friends and neighbors whose per, uh, property who he was always willfully destroying, his misogyny, his by you know what ality. Harris's films is not a portrait of the real Pollock, but it's consistent with the image avatar of him first constructed by Life magazine. And then manipulated by Hans Namath and Hemingway of the American art world. But let's face it, in the end, the Avatar always wins. So Pollock, yeah, so the, the, the Ed Harris film, it like really, it really sort of does the sleazy Hollywood, you know what I mean? Like, oh, he's like larger than life and he's a tortured artist. And he, he was a tortured artist, but like the way that it was depicted was also like, you know what I mean? Like it was very, uh, it was very like gratuitous, you could say. That's that's a good word that uh you know, that's that's a good word that <laughs> ironically enough, uh gratuitous cinema is the word that uh Martin Scorsese used, you know, to describe but you know, really gratuitous media against the work of art. But anyways, finally, before we go to break, before we get some music from Philip Daniel and all of my good my good Patreon, uh, Patreon subscribers and Substack subscribers, please subscribe to Substack and Patreon or, or either of the two. If you don't want, if you don't like one or the other, uh, cause I will talk about finally Mark Rothko and Sean Michael Basquiat. That's going to be totally controversial. People are going to hate it. So you better pay for that one. Anyway, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm shameless. But anyways, about the word image, let me leave you this final thought to, to entice you to going into talking about Rothko and Basquiat, two of the right wing's most hated artists ever, for obvious reasons. But anyways, we'll get into that. Very brave of John uh, J John David Ebert to defend them, really. I mean, that's, I've been trying to, you know, that's why I wanted to review this book. This really is ground zero for Gio's uh, awareness of a lot of art history. But anyways, not all of it, but you know. So, look at christian society right okay so one thing i would say about jackson pollock is that there is sort of a pagan mythos going on there's sort of a tribalistic shamanic mythos where the word the word is the song the voice the music that is evanescent the oral tradition societies they go from the image of the world and man into the cosmos they go from the shaman starting off, and this is what Eliad talks about. The shaman starts off from the state of solidity within his being. But then the shaman abstracts his being, or her, her being. There were shamanesses as well. Or her being into a greater totality that from a mortal perspective seems chaotic and, and is deterritorialized. And the spirits have a progression from personalized beings to splattering themselves across the cosmos. The stars, the Nazca lines, in ancient Babylon, in Samaria, you know, there was always, that's why like the transgender thing is so big with uh, academics where they'll talk about the mythologies of, uh, you know, like Inanna, and like other world mythologies from Samaria having trans trans themes because really it was about the abstraction of being into you know a greater totality so these societies and even like with Nietzsche you could say 
he's taking a bit of that, you know, Indo-pagan spirit, at least some, like, great wingers claim, and he's seeing that the, you know, Nietzsche is capitulating this sort of divine abstraction, this limit experience that bring, like, what is the limit experience? What is the oceanic experience to Freud? Is bringing you into a totality again, right? That's, like, it's feeling a sense of the numinous. And a lot of different wisdom traditions throughout the world does this. But in Christianity is unique because we start off with chaos and then we go into form. It's the opposite. And the reason why it's the opposite is because the word rather than the voice, at least to me, is primary. Because God speaks reality into existence through logos, which is, okay, divine reason and creation, but is the word right? The word then translates into language, then translates into the written form. So it is language rather than voice that is predicated in monotheistic, you know, especially in Christianity, in Abrahamic monotheism. Because it's that opposite. It's going against the ancient trends in some ways. And let's, don't quote me on this in case I'm blaspheming or I'm, I'm invoking some kind of obscure heresy. But I think that in general... Don't get me wrong, and you you know you can leave comments, um, in the YouTube or elsewhere, saying if I'm wrong or not. But basically, Christianity is giving form from chaos, is taking it and transforming it with the word rather than the voice, rather than the oral tradition. It is the word itself that gives order. The way that language, the written language, structures the voice gives it a meaningful form so in a way christianity demythologizes in some sense history because christ ends that sort of line of mythologization no longer does man have to go to this abstract cosmos the spirit you know because christ is the guarantor of our salvation in our personalized faith he's a man but he is also god so it's like there, it's markedly different from most world traditions that rely on oral, the, the oral tradition, that relies on shamanic practices that very much take, at the beginning, personalized deities or spirits or animistic symbols that become progressively more abstract and numinous. Christianity, in some ways, does the opposite. It's the difference between the voice, the logos, the, the word, and voice. And, and oral tradition. So that's just like some random, some thoughts I had, uh, you know, analyzing Jackson Pollock. And Pollock, in a way, you could say was kind of like a pagan uh, artist because he, he delved into the unconscious in ways that invoked animistic spirits. And he was trying to find a way against like the totality of, even at that time in the 40s and 50s, you could say America was becoming like a quote-unquote post-Christian society. But anyways, let's go to the break. Let's go to the paywall version. So uh, thank you all. Once again, please join me on the other side. It's only $5 a month. Okay. <laughs> 